told you some time ago that we were going to uh, make all haste to get to the book of James. But as I've been studying this last portion of 1 Corinthians 16, I found a few things that we'll want to pause on to see what God has to say to us as His church this morning. Uh, we will be looking at verses 8 and 9. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 8 and 9. Here's what the Apostle says under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door for effective service has been opened to me. And there are many adversaries. May God add His rich blessing to the reading of His Word. We call upon Him now for help to understand Lord our God, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Give us grace to receive your truth and faith and love, that we may be obedient to your will and live always for your glory. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. I didn't know I was going to have a perfect example, or close to a perfect example, right out of our window this morning. But I wanted to say this as I began to introduce the subject of our address this morning, that something positively electric happens when large crowds of people gather together for common purpose. What I had in my mind as an example of this might be a concert where you go to see your favorite band. Now, you can listen to your favorite band and their records or their A-tracks or whatever it is you listen to them on, all you like, at home. But there's nothing like actually going to see the performance yourself where thousands of people who have this like-minded interest in this music gather together. Because it's electric, there is a wave of emotion that sweeps across the crowd It's the feeling of being with thousands and thousands of people who enjoy the very same thing you do that makes it a riveting and gripping experience. I suppose you could illustrate the same concept from a political campaign rally where where thousands of people gather together to hear an electric speaker uh, unfold a particular political agenda. And as the speech unfolds, the crowds begin to rally together and galvanize, galvanize a common purpose or a commitment to the truth, and and they leave ready to go out into the world to win people to their cause. It builds momentum when people gather together and enjoy these powerful experiences. Well, the same thing has happened throughout the history of the church. In particular ages, at particular times, we've seen it happen where God has raised up crowds of thousands upon thousands in times of revival where people would enjoy the preaching of the word. Notable examples are when people began to hear St. Chrysostom preach in the ancient church period. He was called the golden-tongued one because he was so eloquent in his ability to expound the word of God that was captivating and mesmerizing and spellbinding to all kinds of people. And so the church began to flourish and grow under his preaching. The same thing happened at the time of the Reformation as the great cathedrals were filled with people longing to hear the truth as they listened to expositors explain the Word of God, perhaps for the very first time in their own language. The time of the First Great Awakening here in America, thousands would gather, uh, not just in churches, but even out in the open fields to hear uh, Whitfield and Edwards and a whole host of preachers. 
Same phenomenon was experienced in the 19th century in the great Welsh revivals. All I'm trying to say is something happens uh, when thousands of people, multitudes of people, gather together for a common purpose and unite around the truth. There are seasons of extraordinary blessing when God causes the preached word, what is ordinary, to be used in a very extraordinary fashion. Now, I'm thinking with you about this idea as I come to our text because that's precisely the phenomenon that the Apostle Paul describes here in verse 9. Except his verbiage is not revival, it's not reformation, it's not electric, it's not people movement. He simply says, it's a wide door. But it carries the very same idea. And this morning we want to see together from the Word of God how God uses what is ordinary and adds an extraordinary blessing upon them as He pours out His Holy Spirit and blesses His church through the preaching of the Word of God to build up His kingdom. And that's what we want to think about this morning. And I want us to begin by piecing together a little bit of the timeline that we have here in our text so that we can tie this particular passage to Acts 19, which sheds light on this open door that Paul speaks of. Now, first of all, last week we noticed that the Apostle Paul was, uh, was giving basic instructions to the churches of Corinth about taking up a collection for the poor who were in Jerusalem. And after uh, relating some of those instructions, the apostle then laid out his travel itinerary. And he told the Corinthians that uh, he had every intention to stop and to spend some time with them. Uh, But he said that before he came to them, in verse 5, he was going to go through Macedonia. And then after he went to Macedonia... He was going to come to Corinth, and then after that he was going to go to Jerusalem. So those are a series of very important factual points that help us to begin to put together the timeline that help us tie this passage to Acts 19. Because as you come to verse 8, you can see that the Apostle Paul was in Ephesus when he wrote this letter. He says, I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. So now the pieces of the timeline are ready to be put together. Paul is writing from Ephesus, and he has every intention to stay there until Pentecost, and that's an important qualifier. And then he says after Pentecost, he's going to go to Macedonia, and he's going to spend some time passing through those upper regions in order to strengthen the churches. And then eventually he's going to make his way to Corinth, spend some time with them, and then go on to Jerusalem. Well, as you coordinate all of those pieces together, you realize that the only other place you can look to to get some insight into the situation he describes in Ephesus is Acts chapter 19. Uh, It's true that in Acts chapter 18, the apostle uh, is uh, recorded as having visited the church of Ephesus. This is the very end of his second missionary journey. And you'll see in Acts chapter 18 that the Apostle Paul, as was his custom, went into the synagogue and and he preached. And then some of the Jews persuaded him to stay. And he said, no, I'm going to have to go on to Jerusalem because he wanted to make it to Jerusalem by Passover. So we know that doesn't fit with that particular stay at Ephesus because Pentecost comes 50 days after Passover. And here in our passage, Paul says he wants to remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. 
So that means that it's the Acts 19 visit that is in view. And that's very important information for us to help us understand here what the Apostle Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 16. He says, I want to stay here in Ephesus, and he provides for us the reason why. For a wide door for effective ministry has been opened to me. You see, it's that wide door of effective ministry that has been opened unto him that is going to form the bulk of our message this morning. We're going to gain insight into what that means now as we turn in the Word of God over to Acts uh, chapter 19. With your Bibles open, and I I think it's very important that you see this for yourself, we're going to see uh, four points about an open door. We're going to see four points about an open door for ministry. And the first thing that we're going to learn about an open door for ministry is that quite often those open doors are cultivated for a time before the Lord causes them to bring forth much fruit. And you can kind of see that developing now as you look at Acts chapter 18. Now I said we're going to look at Acts 19 for the bulk of our message, but it's important for us to see how these passages relate in order to draw at this point of these doors being cultivated. For instance, the Apostle Paul, we're told, in verse 19 of Acts 18, they came to Ephesus and he left them there. Now he himself entered the synagogue and he reasoned with the Jews. He reasoned with the Jews. Now, that particular word is used multiple times in the book of Acts to specifically refer to the Apostle Paul's missionary procedure. This same word is used of him repeatedly. He went into Athens, he went to the synagogue, and he reasoned with them in the synagogue. He went to Corinth in Acts chapter 18. He went to the synagogue, and he reasoned with them in the synagogue. In Ephesus, in Acts chapter 19, we're going to see the very same thing. He went to the synagogue, and he reasoned with them. You'll find the same word in Acts chapter 20, verse 6. In Troas, he went into the synagogue and he reasoned with them. And and what that means is that he went into the synagogue and he picked up his copy of the Old Testament. Because you see, at that point, there was no New Testament uh, collection of letters. And so, in the synagogue, he would go in with his big, fat Greek Bible, and he would open it up, and he would begin to expound upon the Scriptures and show how Jesus Christ was the beginning, middle, and end of the substance of the Old Testament message. You find him doing this repeatedly. Now, here in Ephesus, we're told the Apostle Paul did that very same thing. And it was captivating to these Jews because we're told that after Paul had given this reasoned discourse, they begged him to stay. Now, all I'm trying to get across here is this point that the Apostle Paul had cultivated the people in Ephesus for more preaching of the word by simply going into the synagogue here at the end of his second missionary journey and he unfolded the word of God to them. But the Word of God tells us that the Apostle Paul rejected or declined their invitation to stay any longer, and he went back to Jerusalem to fulfill a vow. But in between that time, there is another figure who rose up who did more of this cultivation work. And that man's name is Apollos. And you see him here in verse 24. It said, Now a Jew named Apollos... An Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the Scriptures. 
Three very important things there that we learn about this man, Apollos. First of all, he was an Alexandrian. You say, well, what difference does that make? Well, being an Alexandrian meant that he was from the city of Alexandria, which is in northern Egypt, which was the most sophisticated and culturally elite city in perhaps all of the Roman Empire. In Alexandria was the world's largest library containing texts from ancient days, probably as far back as two or three thousand years before Christ. It was a great shame that in God's providence, that very library burned down in the early sub-apostolic age because we lost a ton of references and works from antiquity. But Alexandria was a city of zoos and parks and culture and art and reading. It was the hub of intellectual vitality. And so this man from Alexandria begins, as you see the description, to bear those traits. We're told secondly in verse 24 that he is an eloquent man. It means he had the capacity to spell, be spellbinding in his delivery of the word. He was trained in the canons of rhetoric. He knew how to speak with polish and with flourish and rhetorical power. And then we're told, finally, he was mighty in the Scriptures. He was mighty in the Scriptures. I think we get a little bit of a window into what that was all about. If you drop down to verse 28, this is Apollos now speaking in the K, that means Corinth. And uh, we're told there that he refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. But you see, here is what it means that Paul was mighty in the Scriptures, or rather Apollos. What it means is that the Apollos was steeped and saturated in the message and in the knowledge of the Old Testament. And he had a particular ability to communicate the Old Testament message and show how that it all centered upon Jesus Christ. And so... After the apostle left, he went into the synagogue, fervent in spirit, we are told, and he spoke accurately the things concerning Jesus. But you might notice at the end of verse 25 that there is an important qualification. It says he was acquainted only with the baptism of John. That means that he had been somehow a disciple of John the Baptist. It means that he had received the baptism of John the Baptist. You remember that the baptism of John the Baptist was about a preparation for Jesus Christ. It was receiving baptism as a means of preparing oneself to cling to Jesus Christ as their only righteousness. It was a way of saying that I'm sinful. It was a way of identifying our sinfulness before the world in order to be prepared to receive the sinless one, Jesus Christ. But apparently, Apollos had left Palestine before the public ministry of Christ, and it seems that he doesn't know that all of that was fulfilled in the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so the Word of God tells us that after he boldly spoke about uh, Jesus from the Old Testament as the coming one, in verse 26 we're told that Priscilla and Aquila heard him. They took him aside and they explained to him the way of of God more accurately. Well, the sense that we get is that after they clarified uh, the fulfillment of all of his hopes and dreams in Jesus Christ and his shed blood and his resurrection that they unleashed a tiger on the synagogues of Ephesus and Corinth. 
Because we get every indication that this man, with all of his eloquence, with all of his learning, with all of his vitality, with all of his his understanding and wealth of knowledge of the Old Testament, uh, went into the synagogues and he taught and he reasoned and he confronted the Jews with the knowledge of salvation. Now, all of that brings us over into Acts chapter 19, because that is the preparation work for the apostles' ministry in Ephesus. In verse 19, we're told, It happened while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus, and he found some disciples. Now, it's curious that Luke calls them disciples because of what unfolds in verse 2. Paul said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. See, you have here some more disciples of John who no doubt had extensive contact and interaction with this man named Apollos. They had been well-schooled and well-catechized in the Old Testament Scriptures. They had realized that Jesus Christ was the coming one, that he was the fulfillment of the Old Testament expectations, hopes, dreams, and promises. But as we're told here in the Word of God, they were not aware of the fulfillment. That's the best way to take it when it says we haven't even heard there is a Holy Spirit. I cannot imagine uh, that if they had been well instructed in the things of the Old Testament, they would be unaware of a Holy Spirit. It means that they were not aware of Christ's ascension into heaven and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the church. And they were unaware of the baptism in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. And so you see here in verse 5, Paul baptized them in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, I realize that's a lot of content. That's a lot of building up to the point that I'm trying to make here. But all I'm trying to say here is that there was a period over a year and a half to two years where these people in Ephesus were cultivated. There was a time when people were preaching to them and catechizing them in the truth. And it didn't look like anything was happening at all. And then finally, when the Apostle Paul comes back into town, he starts preaching, and we'll read about that in verses 8 and 9, how again he went into the synagogue, he reasoned with them from the Word of God, and was persuading them of the truth. And then finally, the lights go off and the bells begin to ring. And people now are coming to Christ. But you see, there was a period of cultivation, and one reason why I bring this up is, because we're going to look at a moment at this concept of an open door and people flooding to hear the preaching of the Word of God. Churches bursting at the scene with all kinds of vitality and people and excitement and enthusiasm. I want us to realize that that kind of a phenomenon doesn't just drop out of the sky one day. That it takes time to cultivate that. It takes prayer to cultivate that. It takes catechism to cultivate that. It takes careful, line-by-line teaching of the Word of God for a period of sometimes years before this door begins to open and we see this flood of people to the church. And you know that's important for us as a missionary people. It's important for us as a church planting people because it can be easy to become discouraged because you spend some time, two, three, four years sometimes, uh, teaching the Word of God, gathering together for worship, praying that God would do a mighty work, not only uh, calling people to faith and repentance, but actually building the church in a cohesive way. 
And when you don't see that happen on the timeline that you want, it's easy to get discouraged. You see, the expectation today in our church planting context here, and I can just say this openly as a Reformed church planter in a Reformed context, uh, that the expectation is that you gather together a core group, you get some money behind you, uh, you find a place to have worship, you put up a sign, and you got to get busy now packing the people in within a period of three or four years, or it's over. And you know, you know uh, God uh, doesn't always respond on our timeline. You can be doing all the right things, you can be preaching the right things, you can be loving people in the right way, but somehow this, uh, this momentum doesn't always materialize as fast as we'd like. Well, I want us to see that in one of the most important periods in the New Testament of the flourishing of the church, that it didn't happen overnight either. It took a substantial amount of time of preparation and cultivation before God began to move mightily as He poured out His Spirit to accompany the preaching of the Word of God. And so I say that as an encouragement unto us. We're not the only ones who have experienced this. When I think of this concept of a period of cultivation and preparation and prayer and and, and pleading with the Lord uh, to pour out His mercy upon uh, the missionary efforts, I I think of of William Carey, the missionary to India, who in the early 19th century uh, lost his wife and lost his children and, and prayed and preached and taught for over six years before he got one measly convert. And everybody told him that he was a failure. Everybody told him that that was just evidence that the Lord's hand wasn't with him. Everybody told him that, see, we just knew that this was a crazy idea that you have. You're from England. You have no business uh, going all the way over to India trying to convert those people. And you see, the proof was in the pudding. Only one convert. Six years of hard labor. But that wasn't the end of the story. Because by the end of his ministry, he had been instrumental in converting well over 700 people, presiding over a very powerful movement for Christ in India. That's the message to us, first of all, people of God. As we look at this open door, we 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 have to take heart that we have the goal, we have the desire to be a church planting church and to see the hand of the Lord prosper. Uh, our intentions and our plans, but that takes time to unfold in God's way of dealing with us. Second of all, I want us to see here, as we look at this open door, first of all, it's cultivated for a time, but then second of all, when God does uh, open the door, I want us to be clear about the fact that it's an opportunity to preach. This is what Paul does. Look at uh, verse 8 and 9. It says he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. This took place for two years. Now notice this. So that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord both Jews and Greeks. 
I want us to be clear about this, that the opening up of this door by God is an opportunity to preach the Word. That's precisely what Paul did. After the season of cultivation, he went back into the synagogues and he reasoned for three months. And the people, or rather the Jewish people in the synagogue, didn't heed his message, so he withdrew to the school of Tyrannus. Just when it looked like the whole ministry was falling apart in Ephesus, God opened another door. The school of Tyrannus, and every day for two years, people streamed into that school to hear. What a wonderful picture as it's described in verse 10. All of Asia heard the word of God. And the picture is people from all of the surrounding towns around Ephesus and the entire region were captivated as they heard about this apostle over there who was opening up the Old Testament and proclaiming how Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of all of the hopes and promises and prophecies. And it wasn't just the Jews that were captivated by this message. We're told it was also the Greeks who, who found in Christ something to replace their cold, dead, lifeless idols. You see, it was this extraordinary opportunity to preach Christ. The whole region is now fleeing to hear the Apostle. It's electrifying to hear that. It's electrifying to hear that. I wish we would think more this way. I wish we would think this way more often as Reformed people. What, what would it be like to see people uh, coming from the whole region around us? And I don't mean Northern California and Central California and maybe some people from Arizona. No, I mean from all of the surrounding towns here. From Placentia and Fullerton and Diamond Bar and La Puente and Roland Heights and, and Hacienda Heights and all of the cities around us. What if all of a sudden the word was unleashed with such power that people were streaming from all around us to hear the word of God? Too often we get stuck in these ways of thinking that, oh, we only need one Reformed church every hundred miles or so. Have everybody drive to that. That's not how the Apostle thought. He planted strategically in major metropolitan centers. And the fingers of that gospel preaching went out to the surrounding regions. And churches were planted all over. But they are opportunities to preach. And one thing that I want to reinforce in us, and I know that this is going to sound like stuff that we've already heard over and over and over again in catechism. But it's preaching that is to be done when the doors are opened. And you know, there's a real lack of confidence in that. There are all kinds of church professionals who are so-called church growth experts who want to tell you that there's lots of different ways to tell people about Jesus. And I know that because I receive junk mail all the time telling me about it. I receive glossy brochures and special invitations to be a part of cutting-edge ministry seminars where I can learn how to use VeggieTales to grow a a children's ministry in my church. Or or maybe I can learn about how to bring in uh, grade-A Christian comedians and advertise it in the community so that people will come out and have a night of laughs and then hear about Jesus. And you know, it reflects something. It reflects a a losing of heart. That's what it does. It reflects a losing of heart that the preaching of the Word of God is the means that God uses to bring His elect to Himself. 
whether we'd ever admit it or not as a church and as a broader evangelical Protestant community, we still, I think, believe this in our hearts that somehow we've advanced so far by the 21st century that this old means of preaching is just not adequate anymore. We've got to do something that really meets people where they're at. Well, it's discouraging, and I don't just mean in evangelicalism. It's permeating the whole way that Reformed Church planting is done. Not that long ago, I received a letter from a prominent Reformed seminary uh, talking about all the good things that were being done through the seminary. And one of the good things that was being done through the seminary is that they had a hand in planting a Presbyterian church in the South. And business was good. Business was good. Description was given of how this church has successfully reached out to its community. And the scene is set up where you walk into the church and in the back is coffee and donuts. I love coffee and donuts, by the way. I'm not against those. But you see, this was what was great about it. There was coffee and donuts, and then you walk from the back of the church into the, to the worship area, and there's guitars and overheads and drums, and there's ways to sing music off the wall. There's cutting-edge worship, you see. And then the pastor used uh, video clips from popular television shows to illustrate points from his sermon. And then the article reassured us all this was being done to uh, reach the unchurched. Oh, and and in no way compromising uh, the principles of the Word of God. I think this is a Presbyterian church. These, These are people who know the truth. These are the people who have in their confessions that the preaching of the Word of God is the means by which Christ communicates His grace to His church. We have the Scriptures. As I look in Acts chapter 19, one of the most vibrant church planting um, mission stations, the Apostle Paul in Ephesus, I look in vain for coffee and donuts in the back wall of the church. I look in vain for guitars and praise bands in the auditorium. I look in vain for the Apostle Paul uh, hiring people from the local, local actors guild in Ephesus to come uh, put on dramatic skits to illustrate points in his sermons. It's not there. What I find here is this apostle who describes himself in a way that says uh, people looked at him and didn't find him very appealing. He wasn't Mr. Charisma. He wasn't Mr. Personality. But what he did was he went to the front of the church and he took open his big Bible and he sat down and he explained the truth. And he trusted that if he did that and he told people about Jesus from the Word of God, that God would honor it. And that's what we take our marching orders from. And that's where our confidence has to be as a people. It's not our ideas that God uses to open up the doors. And open doors aren't opened up for us so that we can fill them up with our creativity. The Apostle Paul explains that the door was opened and he did precisely what God wants his church to do. Preach. And he preached the word of God. And I want you to notice that as he preached the word of God, thirdly, people responded decisively. People responded decisively. 
I just wanted to show you this because this is what happens when a door opens. People respond, first of all, in disobedience. And this is remarkable. It's a remarkable moment of honesty and candor. Luke tells us in verse 9, but when some were becoming hardened and disobedient. You see, this is what happened when the Word of God was preached. Some people became hardened in heart. This is so interesting that it would be included in the Word of God because this is precisely what we don't include when we talk about the good things that are going on in the local church. Well, last Sunday, 14 people walked away hardened in heart. It just doesn't show up on the statistics sheet. Trust me. But I love the candor here because what it tells us is this is what happens sometimes when the Word of God is proclaimed. Some people become hardened. They become aware of who they are. They realize that they are in opposition to God. That they are enemies to His kingdom. That they don't love His Christ. And when they hear Christ speaking in the Word, they recognize it. They just reject it. Because they don't want Him. They are not of His people. And so some were hardened. We need to realize that, people of God. When we preach the Word of God, it's going to happen that people will be hardened. It's going to happen sometimes that people who've come into the church and they said they named the name of Jesus Christ and they received baptism, we catechize them. It's going to happen that sometimes people walk away. And we can't be caught off guard by that. As much as it grieves us and hurts us, we have to realize that is a mark of the Word of God working. Sometimes the Word hardens in opposition to God, so that people become aware of who they are. They are opposed to Christ. They are anti-Christ. But it's not all negative here, people of God, because look, in the rest of verse 9, it says He withdrew some of them, and He took away the disciples. And then in the rest of the chapter, uh, we read about this um, electrifying movement of people to the church. And you kind of can see here of the power of the preached word upon the lives of those who heard it. There was real change. If your Bibles are open, and I hope that they still are, Acts chapter 19, uh, look down at verse 17. It said, This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord was magnified. And many also those who had believed kept coming, confessing, disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together, and they began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found that it was 50,000 pieces of silver. Isn't that fascinating? Because here the Apostle, or rather Luke, is explaining for us, here's the positive effect of the Word of God. Some people, when they hear the Word of God, are captivated by it. The Spirit brings it with power. They are regenerated. And they bring forth the fruit of real repentance. Fear fell upon them all. That's what happened when the Word of God was proclaimed. Fear fell upon them all. And they began confessing their sins and disclosing their practices. And you could tell that this has really affected them because they burned their books and those books cost thousands of dollars. It was real repentance. It was concrete. And it was powerful. When there is an open door and the word is preached, we expect two things. Some people will be hardened and they will fall away. 
And some people will come confessing their sins and they will be rejoicing in Christ and they will be manifesting the lordship of Christ over their life by the things they give up. By the things that had ensnared them. By the things that had strangled the spiritual life. They broke away from the past. They broke away from the old man. That's what the gospel does. We're going to read in a moment about the Thessalonians. And uh, I love the Thessalonians because of what Paul says about them. They turned from idols to the living and the true God. You see, this is what happens when the word of God is proclaimed. This is what happens when the gospel is unleashed in power. People change. They change by the grace of God. I want to assure you this morning, if you're sitting here, wondering about the gospel, does it matter? Is it just one more system of self-help? That we have concrete testimony and evidence from the very word of God that the gospel alone is what changes. All the other self-help models simply replace one idol with another. That's it. But the gospel replaces idolatry with Jesus. That's what happens when the word is proclaimed, when a door is open. Some are hardened and some embrace Christ. And the lordship of Christ is exercised over them as they give up their sins and seek their washing and pardon in Christ. Fourthly, how does this all happen? And I think this is what we want to know. How did it happen this way? How did it happen that this door opened up? And I'm going to give you two answers. I want to give you the answer about God's side. And then I want to give you the answer about our side. To see God's side, we have to turn over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We're going to bounce in between two texts here in Thessalonians. I just want to let you know that in advance. You see, Paul doesn't explain all about how this door opened in that passage. But he gives us some real insight here in 2 Thessalonians and then back to 1 Thessalonians. Because I want you to see this for yourself in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul says, Brethren, pray for us that the Word of God will spread rapidly and be glorified, just as it did also with you. Uh, Here is the piece of information I want us to see. We're going to come back to the prayer side, which is our responsibility. But what I want to see on the front side of it is what God does. And what the Apostle Paul wants to have happen, he wants the Word of God, and I wish it was translated more literally. It says spread rapidly, but it says in the original, run. What a beautiful image. It's as if the gospel had feet on it. It's borrowed from the games where people would have foot races. The Apostle Paul makes up this metaphor whole cloth himself. And he says, this is what I visualize. This is what I dream of. This is what I long for as a missionary and as a church planter. I long for the Word of God to run. And now he gives us some help objectively understanding what he means by that. Just as it did also with you. 
Here's what Paul is saying. Let me give you a picture of what I mean by the word of God running. He says, just as it did in your case. Well, that means we have to turn back to 1 Thessalonians 1 then, because Paul is referring back to the entrance of the gospel to Thessalonica. And we have a couple of snapshots here in chapter 1 which really help us see what Paul means when he says, just as it did with you. And remember now, we're we're pursuing, we're tracking down this word running swiftly. And you see, when the word came to Thessalonica and it ran swiftly, you can see the effects of that word in verses 8 and 9. It said, the word of the Lord sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. They themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Here's the change. This is what it was like when the word ran swiftly in Thessalonica. It took them away from their idols. It led them to Jesus Christ where they bowed the knee to Jesus Christ and His Lordship. And they ran unto Him for salvation and justification and eternal life. And then what happened? They were electric with the Word. Verse 8 says, The Word of the Lord sounded. In the original there, it has the image of a thunder and lightning storm. It reverberated, the noise and the power of the word reverberated across the city and the hillsides of Thessalonica. You see, because they changed so radically, and then they went and told everybody about it, so that the whole region was aware of the unleashing of the power of the gospel. See, that's what Paul was talking about. That's what it is when it runs swiftly. Now here's the question we have to ask, how does it do that? We'll look at verse 5. 1 Thessalonians 1.5 Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You see, in the accounting for this word of God running swiftly and affecting this dramatic and powerful change is this glorious juxtaposition. He says, our gospel did not come to you in word only. You see, sometimes the word does come in word only. Sometimes the word does come in word only. A person can sit down, hear the sermon, walk out unchanged. Was the word unpowerful? Did God fail? Well, here's what makes the word powerful. Not only is it powerful because it's inspired, but here is the key to the opening of the door and the word running swiftly. Paul says it's not in word only, but in power that is in the Holy Spirit. You see here what Paul is saying is that the Lord poured out the Holy Spirit along with the word. And this ordinary means of preaching accomplish an extraordinary effect. That's how the door opens. God is pleased 
to use the ordinary means of preaching in an extraordinary way by pouring out His Holy Spirit upon him. And when that happens, this, this tidal wave of converts begins. But that's God's work. There's an objective divine side to this. The church preaches. The, the church does everything it can. It preaches the word clearly and accurately and well and winsomely and persuasively. Uh, the church models the love of Jesus Christ and loves people sincerely and honestly and prays for them and enters into them with their burdens and bears them and shares them. But you see, none of that makes the word effective. What makes the word effective is when God brings not just the preaching, but comes alongside it with the power of the Holy Spirit. And then Paul says, that's when the word runs. God does that. And that accounts for how it could be that there were broken hearts all over the Roman Empire. How people who were steeped in the tradition of Judaism and the traditions of paganism and how it could be that all of a sudden all across the Roman Empire within just 30 years of the death of Christ were churches dotted all across the empire. It's an impossible thing to consider from a human perspective. But how did it do it? It happened because the Word didn't just go out only. The Holy Spirit brought it in power and caused it to run swiftly as God opened those doors for the Word to run. That has to be our confidence. It has to be in God that He will do this work. But there's also our side to it. There's also our side to it. And as we wind down our message this morning, I want you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 4. I hope what you're saying right now is, Pastor Sotel, how do we get that to happen here? I'm really not interested in studying ancient Ephesus just for the sake of understanding what happened in ancient Ephesus. I want to see what happened in ancient Ephesus happen here. And God wants that too. And here is how it happens. Here is how it can be that the Apostle Paul can report. I will remain in Ephesus because a wide and effective door for ministry has been opened to me. How did that door open? Well, Paul now gives instructions to the church, to the human side, to the churchly side of this opening. And you see it in verses 2 and 3 of Colossians 4. Paul says, devote yourselves to prayer. Paul says, devote yourselves to prayer. That word there, devote, speaks of intensity. It doesn't as much mean, make sure you pray at 6 a.m., and 12, and 3, and before you go to bed. It could mean that also, but really what it means is intensity. And we get some snapshots of that, because Acts chapter 1, verse 14, we have the same word. It says of the disciples, these all were with one mind continually devoting themselves to prayer. There was an intensity to it. There was an urgency to their prayer request. 
That's the sense here. Now, Paul moves on from verse 2, and he's not just talking about, have a good prayer life. That's not the sense of the instructions here in verse 2. Because verse 3 is connected grammatically to that verb, devote. And Paul now fills in the instructions about prayer he wants to give. He says, devote yourselves to prayer. Now verse 3, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open to us a door. There's the key. That's the connection to Ephesus. The same word, door. Pray for us that God will open the door. Do you see, people of God, your role here? Your role, the churchly role in this wonderful experience of an opening of a door is that the church pleads with intensity. God, open the door. It's the same admonition that Paul gave in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 when he said, pray for us, that the word of God would run. This is our side. This is what the church is called to do. Pray. Pray that God would open that door. People of God, I've gone way over this morning and I realize that. I just want us uh, to bear in mind that we have an obligation here as His people, as missionaries, as church planters. uh, that, um, That we take Paul seriously here in this command. We, as God's people, ought to long for the open door. We ought to long to see the fruit of an open door. Our heart's passion ought to be that the lost would come to Jesus Christ. Lives would be gripped by the gospel and changed. The doors of the kingdom of God would swing wide open. And we also ought to then show that we really are committed to that by a life of very disciplined, intense prayer for it. And uh, when we do that, we should have every confidence that God will use that. He will honor that. And He will bring about what Paul says. A wide door for effectual service.